It's good to be here again, I think. It really is. Last time I got to come and worship with you, um, in this building anyway, I spoke basically to nobody except my wife and not Dave, but whoever was at the sound booth that day. It was during the height of COVID. I hope you all have some sympathy for what it's like to have to do this and to do it during something like COVID where you stand in front of an utterly empty room and talk to nobody. It's a little odd. Um, anyway, it is good. I'm really glad you're here. I do not take that for granted any longer. And um, I'm not sure how long it will take me to forgive Rob Schmidt for pulling that smug picture of me from some website and putting in the bulletin. Um, he's not going to be off the hook for that for a long time. Huh? Yeah, not, not buying it, Rob. Sorry. No sale. Uh, speaking of Jim, yeah, um, Dave has a headset that they normally use for guest speakers, but it wasn't working for some reason this morning, so I had to use Jim's. So if I fight with this thing a little bit this morning, you'll, it's because I didn't realize until I got this headset on what an enormous head Jim has. <laughs> so, you know, it's like wearing a double X large headset. And I know he sanitized it after the last time Jim used it, but I'm still hoping I don't get his cooties from this thing. But anyway, to the business at hand. Everybody at some point in our lives, in some way, we find ourselves in need of being rescued, need of something being saved or salvaged. And it takes all kinds of forms. You know, you, you at some point may experience or may have experienced you know, a business that's on the brink of disaster and you think, who's going to save the business? And you get yourself in some kind of physical peril and who, who's going who's to come to my rescue? Who's going to save me? Um, you, you get yourself in a, in a health, you find yourself in a health predicament uh, for which you're not sure what the outcome's going to be or what solutions there might be and you just want something that's going to save the day. Every one of us find ourselves at some point in life in some kind of circumstance where we, whether we use that word or not, we just feel like we've got to be saved. We've got to be rescued. We've got to be salvaged. And um, it reminds me of, you know, the movie from 20 some odd years ago, Titanic. And, you know, the central character Rose gets, you know, at the end of the movie, she's an old, old lady and she's reminiscing about her romantic tryst with Jack and she says, he saved me in every way a person needs to be saved. So exactly how many ways are there that a person needs to be saved? Um, you know, Christians will sometimes use that word saved, being saved. And we can sometimes use that in ways that are kind of Christian ease, kind of cliche almost. But if you stop and think about it, everybody asks that question in some way. How, who's going who's to save me? Who's going to save the day? Who's going to save this situation? We're, we're always looking for that, whether it's with our health or our finances or our relationships or other forms of danger. How many ways are there that a person needs to be saved? Now, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> 
if you look at our culture in general, you can see all kinds of ways that we're looking for something. The one thing, that one silver bullet that's going to do the trick. It's going to wrap it all up. It's going to put it all right. Theoretical physicists have done this for years when they look for the theory of everything. Have you heard that phrase? Have you seen that? Yeah, lots, lots of physicists are, are obsessed with that, finding that one thing at the bottom of the well in physics that will explain everything in the universe and pull it all together, the theory of everything. Now, rednecks like me, we just have a more simple version of that with this thing we call a multi-tool. It's one little gadget. I can hold my pocket, one little thing, and I can unfold that thing, and it's got like 20 different tools in it. And I can do a lot of things with that multi-tool, but I can never do everything. So whether we're looking for some kind of philosophy, whether we're looking for some product, some other kind of resource, some competency we can develop that will, that will save the day, that will pull it all together, something is always left hanging. Some part of our lives is always a remainder. It's always outside the fence. We, we're always groping for the one thing that's going to fully and completely save us. The Christians in the ancient city of Colossae f- struggles with some very similar things, packaged differently, but the same human struggles. I want us to read uh, together a part of Paul's letter to that church from the first century. The, if you've got a copy of the scriptures handy, turn to the book of Colossians, the letter to the Colossians. And we're going to read from the first chapter. I'm going to start reading in verse 15, read through verse 23. So if you've got a copy of that handy in some form, follow along. Paul says about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. And this is the gospel that you heard And that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now, now Paul wrote this letter to these first century Christians in this ancient city of Colossae, partly to expose the shallowness of what some of them had begun to embrace. 
this letter was addressed to folks who were struggling with some kind of curious teaching that was floating around the region at that time. And we don't know exactly what that was. Paul never tells us. We have to kind of infer from what he says what it was they were struggling with. But best we can tell, it was a kind of a mysticism that, uh, that kind of embraced Jesus but held Jesus to be yeah, someone who kind of is a stepping stone to God, somebody who kind of maybe channels God to us. Uh, so Jesus, Jesus was still important. Jesus was still even maybe crucial, but they got started to get these fuzzy ideas about what what Jesus was, who Jesus was, and essentially that was the trend that most any of us can can relate to, where Jesus becomes kind of manageable. Jesus becomes kind of instrumental, kind of utilitarian. Jesus basically becomes small. Jesus gets shrunken to kind of dimensions that we can, we can get our minds around. We can manage. We can use. Uh, and for us, too, even though we, we may not have much in common with some of those ancient philosophies that were floating around in Asia Minor in the first century, Jesus, for us, can become kind of a nice religious asset. Good moral model, good example of how to treat people well, love. Maybe Jesus becomes for us just one who fills the gaps between what we can bring to the table and what God really demands. Jesus is the, you know, the, the putty, that expansive um, insulation. You ever use that stuff? Just got Put it in the crack, just kind of fills the crack. It's easy for Jesus to become that for us. Really good, essential, necessary, but um, not, not what the Scripture really portrays. But what Paul really gets at in this passage we read can be summarized something like this, that the only gospel that can actually save us in every way we need saving is a gospel that points us to who God really is through Jesus and what our core need really is. The only gospel that can save us in every way we need saving points us to who God is through Jesus and what our core need really is. Now, to do that, Paul uses a kind of literary device that was we call a hymn. I don't know if they sang it, you know, to tunes like Rob and Zach put together, but they call it a hymn, kind of a way of uh, phrasing something in a, in a memorable way. And these first few verses, uh, uh, 15 through uh, 20, are that, that hymn about Christ. We call it often the Christ hymn. And Paul uses that Christ hymn to show us that only through Jesus can we answer those two basic questions. Who is God? And what is our core need, our real need? Only through Jesus can we answer those questions. And so what Paul presents to us that I, that I read can kind of be distilled in a, in a few, few key points. The first is that, that Jesus doesn't just kind of channel God. Jesus is God. Fully and personally revealed to us. He, he says first... He is the image of God. 
The image of God. Now, there's a, a long backstory to that phrase, how that phrase is used through Scripture, and I don't have time to go into all of that. But when Paul kind of brackets that with what he says in verse 19, that in him, that is in Jesus, all God's fullness dwelt. All of what it means for God to be God, we get that in Jesus. Now, if you're thinking at all, that will put a crack in your brain. To think that, that God, and I mean God, and all it means for God to be God, <laughs> is somehow made present to us in a person who was like us. Not just in an appearance, not like a hologram, but actually like us, a tactile person, living, breathing person who shared the life we live. Do you ever stop and think about how curious it is that, that God somehow now knows experientially what it's like to be us? When God takes that knowledge of human life, human experience, human finitude, human brokenness into his own life, God now knows somehow what it's like to be us. Do you think, um, put it this way, and I don't mean to be silly or, or crass, but because of Jesus, God knows what it's like to have the flu and throw up. Because of Jesus, God knows what it's like to be terrified as a human being. God knows what it's like to have a cold. God knows what it's like probably to be beat up. God knows what it's like. So for God to reveal himself to us for God to be present to us is not a manner of you know God staying at some safe clean sterile distance shouting to us or giving us an email doing a divine data download for us no it's for God to show up as one of us in the middle of human life as we know it that's staggering but that's why we need Jesus otherwise God is just remote. God, otherwise God doesn't really get it, if you know what I mean. Jesus is God, fully and personally revealed and present to us. And the second thing he emphasized to us, emphasizes to us is that Jesus is how God rules over everything. Everything seen, everything unseen. He talks about Jesus being the firstborn of creation. He says that through him and by him and for him, all things were created. Everything seen, everything physical, tactile, everything unseen. And we can be at the mercy of all those things. The physical world can kill us. But we also know that there are all kinds of forces in this world for good and evil we never can see, we never can empirically demonstrate them or enumerate them. Can't put them in a test tube. But good and evil are real things. They're not 
psychological constructs that somebody made up. They're real. And all things, Jesus is supreme over them. Now, we may not see that or experience that fully just now, but that's why Paul affirms that. That ultimately, even creation is neither our God nor our enemy. It's created through him and for him and by him and gifted to us. Not to worship, not to abuse, not to hate, not to fear, but as gift. These early Christians needed to hear something we also need to hear. That the universe can't explain itself. These powers, seen and unseen, can, uh, can threaten our lives. But we can't explain. There is no theory of everything we will find through physics. Because while even physics might be able to tell us so much about how the world works, it can never tell us anything about why or who. And that theory of everything is never going to be found in a, in a physics principle that will allow the universe to explain itself. All things only come together through the one who created. The, uh, the old, uh, old by now, uh, Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper made the famous statement that there is not one square inch of our universe to which Jesus doesn't say, mine. Every square inch of the universe, Jesus lays claim to that. That sets us free. Sets us free from many of the fears that would would haunt our lives because of the, the created order. And even death. He says he's the firstborn from the dead. So Paul's referring here to the resurrection. The fact that the, the, the one thing that we probably fear more than anything, death, he's conquered that. He's Lord over that. He's ruler over that. He's, he's put death to death. Paul tells us, um, thirdly, in this brief passage, that Jesus is how God makes everything right again. Uh, He reconciles all things, Paul says, reconciles all things, all loose ends, all brokenness, all tragedy, all loss, all sin, all evil, all things, all will be well, right? All will be well. Now, how does he do that though? No other Jesus can save us because this is a Jesus who doesn't wave a magic wand. Do it again from some safe, clean, sterile distance. This is a Jesus who, as God, takes God's own judgment on himself for all that evil. All evil, all sin, all death, all is judged by God, but the judgment doesn't come On us, mercifully and lovingly, God takes it on himself. Just circles it back on himself. Absorbs it all. And we're reconciled. 
when, when we think about what it means to be saved, what, is, what are the ways in which anybody needs to be saved? There are lots of ways, right? We need lots of saving at lots of different times, lots of different ways in our lives. We need it in our health. We need it in our finances. We need it in our careers. Uh, we need it in, uh, in, our, in our avocations, our hobby. We need saving all kinds of ways. But the only gospel that can save us in every way we need saving is a gospel that points to who God really is through Jesus and what our core need really is. And only God can do that. Any other mode of saving points to problems that are merely superficial. Paul makes this in verse 21 very, very personal when he, uh, he kind of shifts gears after talking about Jesus as fully God. Jesus as how God rules over everything. Jesus as how God makes everything right again. Then Paul reminds these Christians, and remember he is talking to Christians, that they were once separated from God, alienated from God. Alienated from the very source of their lives. And alienated, he tells them, he even says, you were enemies of God because of your evil behavior. Now, to some of us, maybe many of us, that might be, ooh, a little jarring, right? Do you think of yourself as one who behaves evilly or did so? Maybe in some cases, maybe, okay? But I'm going to guess that many of you are Pretty nice, well-socialized people who maybe have been, I don't know, reasonably good boys and girls most of your life. (laughs) Enemies of God because of your evil behavior? Really? Well, here's the deal that Paul is talking about. He's not just talking about different things that people do or don't do or how well or poorly socialized you are or how rude or ill-behaved you are. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the fact that from birth, every one of us are on a trajectory where we want to be our own gods. That, that is the human condition. We want to be our own gods. And we have all kinds of really polite, really respectable, in some ways, really admirable ways of exhibiting that. We don't look like or think about ourselves as enemies of God, but we just want to be our own gods. We want, as Frank Sinatra sang so charmingly, to do it our way. Right? But Paul says, that is what you were, and that's why it took Christ's physical body, his death, his sacrificial blood for God to make all things well because that was our core problem. Guess what, Paul says? That doesn't just happen automatically. That happens when we own it, when we believe it, when we trust it, when we stop playing games. We let God be who he is. We own our core need. 
Paul calls us to respond to that. And guess what? To keep on responding. Keep on trusting that. Keep anchoring your hope in that, in the fact that your core need is a need that there's no multi-tool and no theory of everything, and there's no love affair, and there is nothing you can manage or access or manipulate that's going to reconcile you in your core need. Nothing you can do. You're bankrupt, got no cards to play. You got, you got nothing, Paul tells us. And that's the best place you can be because that's where you can let God reconcile you. You can let God pull it together. And that's how God has done that, by taking the worst that our evil and sin can dish out, just pulling it back on himself, judging our sin in himself out of his mercy. Um, that, friends, is the gospel. That's what Paul says. That's the gospel that saved you. That's the gospel that's reconciled you. That is good news. So the question that Paul's comments to these ancient Christians in first century Colossae, questions he puts to them are the same questions he puts to us, really. How big is your gospel? How, how big is your good news? Is it big enough to encompass what you really need? Is it big enough to have a Jesus who can really do it rather than just kind of throw you some resources here and there? That's the gospel. That's the good news. And that gospel will always challenge the small, manageable, domesticated Jesuses we like to um, think about, we like to kind of make nice and polished. That's a Jesus who's not just exemplary. That's a Jesus who will flip our lives upside down and save us. Some years ago, one of my sisters uh, and her husband had to fix their sunroom that somebody, some prior owner, had attached to their kitchen. Beautiful little sunroom on the back of their kitchen, kind of looked out over their backyard. Really, really nice. We'd go over for family gatherings at my sister's house. And over time, you know, we started to notice that once you step across that, uh, that border from their kitchen into that adjacent sunroom, things got a little kind of squishy, you know, a little leany, if you will. Uh, it got so bad that they finally realized they're going to have to get underneath that sunroom and, and fix it. When they got underneath there, they realized that whoever, whatever prior owner had, had built and affixed this sunroom, apparently pulled no permits uh, because all they had done is just uh, kind of screwed it laterally into the side of the house and put four wooden four-by-fours on the corners on the dirt. Uh, over time, I mean, you don't have to be a construction engineer to know how that gig works, do you? didn't take long before those posts just kind of weasel their way into the dirt. And then and the family steps on the sunroom floor, we're all kind of leaning. And when, when we do the, the quick fix, the workaround, the shortcut of a Jesus that might seem important, might seem uh, 
crucial even, but a Jesus who's kind of small, kind of manageable, just a good example, just a channel of God. When we, when we take the easily packageable Jesuses, it's just like building that sunroom on dirt with no pylons. May seem to help for a little while, but it will always give way. It will always fall down. It will never save us in every way we need saving. So this, this God, this Jesus alone is the answer to our deepest need to know God, to be accepted, to flourish, to be free, to live without fear, even when our circumstances don't change or even when we don't know how certain things are going to come out. The only gospel that can save us in every way we need saving is a gospel that points us to who God really is and what our core need really is. And we only know that through Jesus. And that's a gospel, frankly, that will uh, that'll humble us. It'll sober us. But it will also lead us to the kind of joyful gratitude and freedom that Paul prays for in the verses just before the ones I read. It'll set us free to enjoy what God has made without fearing it or worshiping it. It'll set us free to be totally honest about ourselves, about who we are, with no games, no tricks. There, there are, in fact, lots of, uh, lots of good resources to help us in life in various circumstances, various predicaments we get in. Thank God for those. But only this gospel, only this Jesus gets at our core need. And regardless of how our lives work out circumstantially, everything we need is there. Everything. Let's pray together. Our God, for what Paul has presented to us, we are grateful. Grateful that you have taken us seriously enough to set up shop among us as one of us through Jesus. Grateful that you have loved us enough to take on yourself the judgment for all sin, all evil, and death itself. Grateful that that is indeed good news. We pray, Father, that you would keep our eyes keenly tuned on that. Keep that clear to us. Keep us from the, the temptation to buy into thin and, and cheap and shallow gospels that really